This evening we are continuing our study in the doctrine of sanctification or holiness. And we are eager to discover how to be holy, how to be godly Christians in every regard. We began last week a study of the doctrine of politics, holy politics. We need to be holy in every area of life. In this series, perhaps you've forgotten, we had begun with five sermons opening up the matter of what is holiness. And then we had six sermons on how to think like a Christian. Now we're in the midst of studying how to act like a Christian. And so we're studying politics, how to act like a Christian when it comes to the government, in what sphere. So last week we covered four of ten principles, ten principles for holy politics. We covered the first four. Number one is promote sphere sovereignty. We need to act like Christians in each sphere. Uh, Number two is reject government control of religion. Number three is support personal freedom. Personal freedom is not neutral. It is Christian. Number four, we closed with this last week. It's a very long section in the notes. And that is learn a biblical view of the government. Learn a biblical view. And underneath that, we discussed the structure of biblical government. And there was one big doctrine that we said, this Bible doctrine brings us to the separation of powers. That is, governments should have a, an executive, a judicial, and a legislative. They should have a parliament and a president and a court system because of this Bible doctrine. What doctrine in the Bible teaches us that we should have a separation of powers? Well done. Total depravity. Because men are sinners, we cannot give too much power to one guy because if it's the king of England, he'll make a mess. If it's the king of France, he'll make a bigger mess. If it's the king of Zimbabwe, he'll make a... We need to have the power spread out. So that was what we studied in closing last week. Today, I'd like to begin with principle number five. We'll do numbers five through ten today. Number five is this. Obey government's laws usually. Number five, obey government usually. Romans 13, 1 and 2. You know these verses. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority has resisted the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Remember that Paul was writing this while Nero was the the emperor. He was a wicked, godless man. And Paul says, obey him. And that reminds us that the default position of a Christian is obedience to the government. Can anyone think of a time when Jesus obeyed the government in a matter where he, he didn't necessarily have to, but he did? Caleb? Matthew 17, verse number 27, he paid the tax. It was a tax on the temple. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. And he says, why should I have to pay this tax? But we will pay it. And so he takes the coin from the fish and pays the tax. 
And even Paul in Acts chapter 23, this is maybe the most remarkable. In Acts chapter 23, Paul is unjustly taken before the Sanhedrin. That's the group of 70 men who ruled the Jews. And they bring an unjust accusation to Paul. And Paul says, God will smite you, you whited sepulcher. He was saying that because the man had ordered that Paul should be struck. And Paul mocked the man and called him an insulting name. And then the men standing by said, are you going to mock the high priest? And Paul said, in Acts chapter 23, verses 3 through through 5, Paul says, I did not know he was the high priest. Had I known it was the high priest, I would not have said that. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Even though the high priest was a religious leader and Paul was not in that religion, Paul said, I should not have spoken evil. I should speak the truth, but I should not mock even bad rulers. Some people are so masterful and so self-advancing that they struggle to obey the laws of the king. Is that you? Do you struggle to obey the government's laws? Are you willful when you should be meek? This is the sin of rebellion and it is worse than witchcraft and idolatry. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. So that's principle number five. Christians should obey the government. Usually. Principle number six. Christians ought to disobey the government. Sometimes. So principle number five is usually obey. Principle number six is disobey sometimes. Godly Christians, to be holy as a Christian, you must have a category that says, I can disobey the government. Let me just read to you a string of examples where godly men disobeyed the government. (coughs) Shifra and Pua. Disobeyed the Egyptian government, Exodus 1, 17. Moses disobeyed the Egyptian government when he defended the, the Israelite from the cruel taskmaster, Exodus 2, verse 11. Moses disobeyed Pharaoh by sending the plagues, Exodus 5 through 10. Rahab disobeyed the government, Joshua 2, verse 3 and 4. Samuel refused to forgive or unite with the king, 1 Samuel 15, 25. And 26, uh, Saul, the king, said, please come back and pray with me. And Samuel says, I will not do it. He would not obey the king when the king wanted spiritual unity. David refused to take Saul's armor. 1 Samuel 17, 38, David disobeys the king to save his life. 1 Samuel 19, 12, the king says, David, you must die. David says, no, actually, I shouldn't die. And David runs off. The king said... You've got to die. David did not meekly say, okay, you're right. Just take me. Here I am. David said, let me run away quick. Michael disobeyed the king, her father, in order to protect her husband. 1 Samuel 19, 17, which means Michael disobeyed in the sphere of family and in the sphere of government. And both of those disobediences were biblical and God-honoring. Jonathan disobeyed the king, his father, to protect his friend. 1 Samuel 20, verse 9. Disobeying two spheres, and both of them 
were godly disobedience. The servants of Saul disobeyed the king's command. 1 Samuel twenty two seventeen. The king says, kill those priests. And all of Saul's servants said, no way, we're not doing it. So he turns to a Philistine. Is a Philistine or Edomite? Doeg. Doeg, the Edomite. He turns to an Edomite and says, you kill them. And he says, I'll gladly kill those ones. But all of Saul's servants disobeyed the king. Saul's armor bearer disobeyed the king. When Saul said, kill me, the armor bearer said, wait a minute, you don't have authority to take your life and I'm not going to kill you. First Samuel 31 verse four, Obadiah disobeys Ahab and Jezebel when they try to murder the prophets of the Lord. Second Samuel 18 verse four, Elijah disobeys Ahaziah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disobey Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel disobeys Darius. Haggai and Zechariah command Zerubbabel and Joshua to disobey Tatnai and Darius. The Magi disobey Herod. John the Baptist disobeys Herod's son, Herod. The apostles in the early church disobeyed the government, and I have a string of verses for that. Abigail disobeys her husband. Jacob, Jacob left Laban uh, without telling him. Jonathan snuck out privately to attack the Philistines. Jesus did not obey his parents when he stayed in Jerusalem. The donkey disobeyed Balaam. There is a time and a place for biblical disobedience. Some people are so afraid of the government that they cannot imagine civil disobedience. Those people are weak when they should be strong. The other people are willful when they should be meek. These people are weak when they should be strong. And this is the sin of cowardice, and it is a great sin. The apostle James was killed because he would not obey the government. We should be willing to disobey the government if God is honored by that disobedience. Sometimes God would have us to disobey the government, and by disobeying, we may lose something very important or very valuable but we will gain the favor and the honor of God. So number five, obey usually. Number six, disobey sometimes. The emphasis is on obedience and disobedience is rare, which brings us to number seven. Number seven, Christians ought to live as model citizens. Christians ought to live as model citizens. You can open your Bibles to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. If there are two big passages in the Bible on the Christian and government, one of them would be Romans 13. And I'm sure many of you already know that. Another one is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. So right there, what is our command in verse 13? Obey. Submit. Whether to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto those that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. For the praise of those who do well. For this is the will of God. That by doing right, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
How are you going to make foolish men stop thinking evil of your religion? Answer, just be a good citizen. Be a good man for a long time. Verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Verse 17, honor all people. Love the brotherhood or the citizens. Fear God. And what comes right after fearing God? Honor the king. When we obey the government in its sphere, we are obeying Jesus Christ. And not only is obedience to government a default position, but so too is freedom. Do you see that in verse 16? Act as freemen. I think the ESV says live as freemen. Does it say live as freemen? ESV? Say it again. The word live is not in the original text. It literally says as libertarians. That's the word, you boys. As libertarians. And there's another word, liberty, in the verse. So Peter is saying to these people in verse 16, as libertarians, use your liberty the right way. The default position for a Christian is freedom. And we ought not try to steal freedom from other men. We are to honor all men, love your neighbors, be good citizens, fear God, put religion into society. Pay respect to, but do not worship the authorities. The Bible says honor the king. It doesn't say worship him. I saw out here on a bulletin board right by the mall. They advertised something at the Mikado Fairgrounds for the mayor of Mikado Municipality. And they said, come visit with his worship. So-and-so, the mayor. No, that's too far. I'll honor you. I will say, yes, sir. Or if I would invent, I would say, Kotsi. I may bow to greet, but worship, that's too much respect. There's a certain kind of respect that goes to God. There's a different kind of respect to your father. There's a different kind of respect to your husband. There's a different kind of respect to your friend. There's a different kind of respect for the government. And the Christian's job to be holy is I give just the right amount of respect in each sphere. We'll show honor to the president. We'll show honor to the mayor. We will not use the word worship to speak to any man because we call no man our father in that way. We might call them Kotsi or Baba or Tatana in a way where everyone around us understands, oh, that is a respectful title. But as soon as it crosses the line from respect to worship, no, we bow our knees and we worship for one. It is Jehovah. It is God. It is Jesus Christ. But we show respect and appropriate honor in each sphere. So, what are Christians? We are submissive libertarians. We are free slaves. There's the paradox that Peter puts before us. 
We handle our own business. We do not meddle in other people's business. But all the while, we are obedient to every command of the government. We are bound to the authorities that are over top of us, but we are free to pursue our righteous desires. And what do model citizens look like? Let me give you a few examples. Model citizens pick up trash in public places rather than leave it. If you have the chance to make a public area clean, you should do it. If it does not hinder your service and your work. Example. On the road outside of your house. There may be trash. And it will take you five minutes to clean up that trash. That trash ought to be cleaned up by you. The model citizen. The Christian. So that everyone knows. The people living there. If we all lived the way those people lived. This would be a beautiful, peaceful, safe and happy country. How do model citizens live? They care for their homes and yards so that they can add beauty to the entire community. There's one thing to add glamour to the community. There's another thing to add peaceful beauty to the community. Number three, how do model citizens live? They report problems on the street when necessary or they solve those problems when possible without a word. Yes, some problems are too big and we need to contact authorities. But many times the problems are small and we can fix them ourselves. As citizens, we don't say, well, that's not my job. We say, I I have responsibility here. I own this place. What do model citizens do? They pay their taxes honestly. They never lie about their taxes. They protect women who are being bothered by bad men in public. If we see a woman being harassed, good citizens, good Christians protect those women. Good citizens begin ministries that will serve society like schools or orphanages or clinics or crisis pregnancy centers or job training centers. And the last two that I mentioned, crisis pregnancy centers and job training centers, give no, no money back to the person who starts it. You can't make money by starting a crisis pregnancy center, but you can save babies and make the society and the community better. When you have a job training center, maybe there's a way to make that bring in money, but probably not. You're helping poor people who don't have jobs to prepare them and skill them so that the community and the society will be more profitable and fruitful. Principle number eight. How can we be holy? Number eight. Christians ought to take every God-given chance. Take every God-given chance to fashion the government according to Christian principles. Number eight, we should take every opportunity to make our government reflect biblical Christianity. First Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You are a steward. A steward is someone who has been given something and he must act faithfully with that thing he's been given. If you give your child some money and say, I want you to go to the store and buy these things. If the child comes back and he's wasted the money, you'll be unhappy with that steward. How much more will God feel when he says, I gave you these talents, Matthew 25, Or Luke 19, I gave you 10 talents, I gave you five talents, I gave you two talents. 
What did you do with what I gave you? Answer, oh, I used it for myself. He will come back and say, you wicked servant. Matthew 25 teaches stewardship. Luke 19 teaches stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4 explicitly says it. It is required in stewards that we be found faithful. What have we been made stewards of? Well, you have one life. You'd better use it so you can give an answer for it. You've been given your money. You've been given a wife or children. In today's day and age, you have been given the chance to vote. They did not have that in Israel. They did not have that in China in 1800. They did not have that in the Bantu peoples before 1960. This is a gift that you have to make your voice known and to influence other people. 1 Corinthians 7.24, Paul says, Every man must remain in his calling. In 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about marriage. And he means if you're single when you become a Christian, you, don't have to, you do not have to run out and get a wife. You can stay as a single man and be a Christian. And he goes on and says, are you a slave when you get saved? You don't have to fight for your freedom and, and, and go out and try to break out of your bonds and say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can't be a slave anymore. You can still be a slave and be a Christian. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, you can even own slaves and be Christian. That might shock and offend and anger many people, but it's in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6 verse 1. The point is, you need to do what you can where you are. And where you are is in 2022. You have a voice in government. You have a chance to vote. You have a chance to correctly complain. We don't want to complain in a sinful or foolish way, but we do want to complain in a way that godliness will prevail. Wherever we find ourselves, we should be serving God with what we have where we are. Republican and democratic forms of government are rare in history. Republic means this. You vote for one man and that man makes the decision for your group. That's republic. You vote for the man, you don't vote for all the decisions. How much should ESCOM Raise the price. In a republic, you don't make that decision. You choose a thoughtful man and he makes that decision. Democracy. Democracy means rule by the people. Demos, people. Crassy, rule. Democracy, rule by the people. The people's rule. In democracy, the people vote on more items than in a republic. In a strict democracy, every decision would have to be voted on. What is the speed limit on Rissick Street? Let's all vote. That would be a very bad way to do things because there are hundreds of laws and you wouldn't even be able to go to work. You'd be voting all the time. A republic is the best form of government because it guards the power from being in the place of one king at the top but it still gives you a voice because you choose this guy to be your ruler and he has to make 200 decisions. Let's say you like 186 of the decisions that man makes of the 200 and 14 of the decisions he makes you don't like. Well, maybe you'll choose to have that man again. Maybe you'll say, 
Well, he had 200 decisions to make in the last four years. He made 186 decisions that I like. He made 14 decisions that weren't biblical. So what would you do? Well, maybe you'll vote for him again, unless the 14 were very, very important things and the 186 were very, very unimportant things. In a republic, you are one step away from the decisions at the end. But you still get to influence the decisions. So if you, if you voted for a man to be your, your ruler or your ward counselor, and you find out he does something bad, what might you do? You might call him and say, hey, hey, what are you doing? And he could say to you, ah, shut up. I don't care what you think. I'm the ward counselor and I've still got 16 months left. Well, then what are you going to do? You're going to say to him, when your election comes up again, we're not going to vote for you. But he can still do what he wants for 16 months. So a republic is that form where a man, you choose the man and the man makes the decisions for you. Webster's Dictionary defines it this way, quote, power is lodged in representatives chosen by the people. It differs from a democracy in which the people exercise the power of government in person. Yet, this is all Webster from 1828. Yet the democracies of history are sometimes called republics. So we have a mix here. It's called the Republic of South Africa. Do we live in a republic or a democracy? More like a republic. Because we choose the members of parliament... We choose the president, we choose the ward counselors, and they go off and do their things, and then we hear about it later. There is a significant overlap between Republican and Democratic, but here's the point. Republican form of government was slowly growing throughout history from the time of the Greek states of Athens. From that time until America really brought it to its highest point in 1776, they have been slowly growing. That means David did not live under a democracy or a republic. Peter did not live under a republic. Maybe in a, in a sense, but Peter himself didn't get a voice in it. Today you have the chance to have a voice in your government and you need to be a good steward of that So let me give you five things that governments can do in a Republican or Democratic government. Five things. This is all under principle number eight. You should do what you can for the government. Five things. Number one, what's the first thing? Vote. You should vote. Why should Christians vote? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. How could I put that into the moral syllogism? Being a bad steward is a sin. Is that clear from 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2? Not voting is being a bad steward. Not voting in 2022 when you are a citizen in a republic. Not voting in 2022 when you are a citizen in a republic is bad stewardship. Now, that that line, that line is not in the Bible. You're going to have to go out the Bible and study and learn and learn about politics and think in order to figure that out. But is that second line true? The first line we know is true. It's straight from the Bible. Being a bad steward of an opportunity you've been given is a sin, right? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Line number two. 
not voting in 2022 when you live as a citizen in a republic is being a bad steward. Is that true? I say yes. Conclusion. Not voting in 2022 when you are a citizen in a republic is a sin. Number two, learn about the political process. One of the reasons I'm teaching on this right now is to help you to obey this eighth principle and to be holy in your actions with the government. Learn about the political process. I'm not saying necessarily learn, watch the news. You won't learn very much about the news except that you shouldn't watch the news. I sometimes read the news and I rarely come away thinking I've spent my time well. Number three, influence others toward a wise and godly view of politics. Influence others. You don't have to be, some people say, that guy's always involved in politics. Usually what they mean by that is, that guy wants power and he wants special benefits for his group. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be afraid to talk to your brothers and your friends and your uncle and your church about politics. Don't be afraid to say to them, hey, what do you think a Christian would do in this election coming up? How should Christians be involved? Influence others toward a wise and godly view. Number four. Can anyone guess what number four is? Number four and five go together. Can anyone guess what four? One's an R, the other's an S. Run for office yourself. And number five is support a good candidate with money. It's not sin to run for office. It's not sin to serve your country. It's not sin to be involved. In fact, it may be the the God-chosen path for you or your son. Abraham Kuyper was a pastor, the head of a university, the editor of a newspaper, and for a little bit, he was the editor of two competing newspapers. How do you edit two newspapers who are competing against each other? And then at the same time, number four, he ran for political office and won as a member of parliament. And then in the next election, his political party had the largest number, but not a majority. So he joined his political party, joined with the Catholic party, and together they made up the majority. And since his party had more votes than the Catholic party, they had to choose the prime minister from his political party. And Abraham Kuyper became the prime minister of Holland, While he was still doing all these other jobs. So while you're working and while you're pastoring, why don't you run for office? (laughs) William Wilberforce fought to make slavery illegal. A Christian man who went into politics. And Caleb told me this story. I did not read the biography, but Caleb read the biography in Wilberforce and said, Wilberforce destroyed slavery by cutting away at it little piece by little piece until slavery became so unprofitable that slowly pieces of it had to be dropped off and it was, became so difficult that eventually they could ban the whole thing. And one of the ways in the last vote when they were voting to ban slavery in England, was it 1809? Uh, 1807. 1807. When they were banning to Uh, When they were voting to ban slavery in 1807 in England, Wilberforce, this is Caleb telling me from the biography, Wilberforce purchased horse riding tickets 
and he gave horse riding tickets to his fellow members of parliament who were not going to vote to support his bill. And he gave them tickets to ride horses for free on the very day and at the hour when he wanted to ban slavery. So the people went off riding horses who were going to vote against his bill and his bill passed and slavery died in England. Amen. Hallelujah. Or Roger Williams. Roger Williams was a Baptist in America who was persecuted because he was a Baptist. He went to a new place and he started a colony, which now would be called a province or it's now called a state in America, of Rhode Island. Rhode Island was started as the first state in the history of the world, as far as I know, that had in its founding documents complete religious freedom. Now many places have religious freedom. Started from Roger Williams, the Baptist. And those are all examples of principle number eight. Take every chance you can to move government in a Christian direction. Do not say, oh, government's so bad and so evil, we can't do anything, why bother? No, move it, change it, shake it. Shake the world, do something for God. Number nine, principle number nine, reject fascism. I'll spell that. Reject fascism, F-A-S-C-I-S-M, F-A-S-C-I-S-M, fascism. Reject fascism. Fascism is loving or respecting government too much. Loving or respecting government too much. Government should be loved. It should be respected to this degree and not that degree. Fascism is when you go right past the biblical level and you take it too far. How can I prove that from history? Jonah Goldberg wrote an excellent book. I don't always support Jonah Goldberg. In fact, in many things I disagree with him. He likes war too much. He's a politician or a commentator in the U.S. But in his book on liberal fascism, I was, I was thrilled. Liberal fascism is a historical study of modern countries and how the leaders of those countries urged the people to put their trust in the government. And Goldberg's thesis in the book, Liberal Fascism, is this. Fascism is loving the government too much. And modern, in the modern day, people who do that are called liberals. So they try to take away the appropriate love for the family and take away what should be given to father and they give it to the government. They take away what should be given to pastor and they give it to government. They take away what should be given to God and they give it to government. That's fascism. Sometimes you'll hear that Hitler, Adolf Hitler in Germany was a fascist. Is that true? Well, of course it's true. Hitler wanted people to die for the state. He said, our state is greater than all other bonds. So we can murder Jews. We can conquer whole countries. We can destroy innocent people. Why? Because the state has said so. Whoa, that's too much honor, 
too much respect to the government. The same thing was happening at the same time by Benito Mussolini in Italy. Even though Mussolini and Nazis differed in important respects, they were both fascists because in both cases, and again, I'm just repeating here what Goldberg has in his excellent book with lengthy chapters on each of those uh, rulers. In each place, both of those men realized that I cannot get what I want unless I force the people to depend on the government. One of the reasons that I so strongly oppose government grants is because that is a soft way to get people to love and trust in the government. They don't work hard. They don't say, my dad will take care of me. They don't say, let me work hard and let me do this thing. They say, oh, the government. Oh, the government. And so without realizing it, not with Hitler's bold, loud speeches, but without realizing it, people have transferred their trust and their dependence that should go to God onto the government. Or that should go to their father. Or the the confidence they should have in their own skill at working. Many Africans, years ago, Papa Nico told me this, that one of the problems with young African men is they don't have any, how can I say it, self-respect. And by that I mean they don't even have the kind of confidence that says, let me go out and work hard and try. And one of the reasons young black men don't have confidence to go out and try is they've got the government silently teaching them all the time, you can't do anything, come to us. If you want something, just depend on us from start to finish for everything. Oh, the big white people, they're too strong, they're too wicked. That's giving far too much honor to white people and that's degrading to black people. It's a kind of fascism. It's very dangerous. And it is especially wrong because Christ is not yet king. To love the government as if it were king before... Christ is in the government, is giving inappropriate love to the government. So reject fascism. Be thankful for your government. Support your government, but reject fascism. And that leads us to number 10, which I'm sure you can all guess. I saved it for 10, not because it was the most difficult. You all knew it was there, but because I wanted to close with this one. Uh, I'm seeing some blank looks, but I thought everyone would know. Can you tell me what is the 10th one? Was the 10th principle, how to handle government in a holy way? I have not mentioned anything about this. This is probably the third most popular passage in the entire Bible on the government. If the first is Romans 13, the next is 1 Peter 2. What is the 10th principle for how to handle government? She had her hand up first. Pray for your government. Pray for your government. Take your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2. This is the 10th principle, and we'll close with this tonight. 1 Timothy 2. Scripture says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1. Four words for praying. Prayer, intercession, thanks, Supplications. Pray for all men, but in verse 2, who are you commanded to pray for in the local church? For kings and for all the authorities. Today, that would be the members of parliament. That would be the cabinet of the president. That would be the Mikado mayor. 
That would be the ward counselors. That would be the Limpopo premier. We are to pray for those ones who have authority and power. What are we to pray for them? Look at verse two. Number one, pray for them so that we can lead a quiet and peaceable life. Or maybe your Bible says a sincere and honest life. You want to have a society that runs peacefully? Then pray that God would give you honest governing officials. I'll say this as just one comment. Generally, God gives a people rulers that reflect the majority of the people. So if the people are 60% or 75% evil and wicked, generally he gives the people that kind of a ruler. Generally, he does not give good rulers unless the people have seen revival. And one of the reasons we know that's true is the rulers come from where? They come from the nation. Years ago, I was talking about this with some women that we were evangelizing. And I mentioned that it's sad that we have so many bad politicians. And I said, where do you think those bad politicians came from? And the one lady said, ah, they came from their mothers. Where do you think those mothers came from? Ah, who knows? Who knows? Well, we do know. It came from you. It came from your town and your village and your province. We generally have rulers who look like us. But we as Christians ought to be pure and holy. So I hope that the rulers don't look like you. Because our rulers are very foolish. They spend money foolishly. They steal money. They call, they call it uh, freedom when what they mean is murdering children. We need to pray, first of all, in verse 2, that we would have an honorable, peaceful, efficient life with low crime. Why? Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What's the second thing we should pray for? Number one, we pray for them that they would be able to rule us in a way that could bring us to peace. We don't want crime. We want a rich economy. We want jobs for our boys. That's verse two. Pray that those people would be wise and would lead wisely. Verse number four. How else should we pray for those who are in authority? You tell me from verse four. So how should we pray for them to be converted? Let's pray first of all that they would lead us into peace and prosperity. What wisdom. That they would make wise laws. That they would get rid of corruption. That they would have justice and honesty and integrity. Pray for them that way. Why or how? Verse 4. Through conversion. When you pray for your government... Pray that God would save them. You say, but that's hard for me to believe. Hasn't he promised us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26? Not many mighty are called, but he didn't say not any. He said not many. That means some will be saved. 
Why not pray in faith? Oh, God, save people in the South African government. Save them in the Mikata municipality. Pray that on Sundays as a church. Pray that yourself for your government. How can we be holy? Tenth principle. Pray. Are there any comments or questions as we close tonight? Father, please give us wisdom and godliness and holiness in our government. We pray tonight that you would have mercy on the South African government. Forgive us for our many sins. Forgive our leaders for their great wickedness, for their foolishness, their evil, their man-pleasing, folly in endorsing sodomy, transgenderism, evolution, inflation, abortion. Oh, dear God, save us. From so many sins, the breaking of the 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments. For corruption and for evil on every hand. Oh, God, save our country. We pray that you would hear us and lead us to pray for our government. And lead us to live in a God-honoring way. pray that you would save the president and his cabinet. We pray that you would save the parliament. Save the premiers in each province. Lord, I prayed these prayers, but I doubt... Forgive me for doubting and let us see one or two or three or ten converted that we might know God has heard us. Save ward counselors and let us have a godly impact on them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.